listening to the Cross-Border Interviews with Chris Brown. Welcome back to another great edition of the Cross-Border Interviews with Christopher Brown. Uh, today, I am honored and pleased to have the federal leader for the Christian Heritage Party, Mr. Rod Taylor, on the show to uh, discuss politics of today, the Christian Heritage Party, but also himself. Rod, thank you so much for doing this. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Well, it's, yeah, it's really my pleasure to be with you, Chris. Uh, I'm here in northern British Columbia. And, and I uh, see a button. I see a pin that's in yeah. Calgary, and that's where I am. Okay. All right. So uh, thanks for the invitation. No worries. So anyone who's listened to the show before knows the very first question that's going to come out of my mouth and you're no exception to that rule. Where's your sense of duty to serve come from? Oh boy. Uh, well, I think we all have some sense of duty. Uh, some feel it more than others. <clears throat> and of course we get drawn into different realms of uh, those responsibilities but uh, <clears throat> my dad was involved in the civil rights movement in the United States. He marched with Martin Luther King, and he was <clears throat> he went to to jail in World War II as a conscientious objector. Um, so whether anyone uh, agrees with that position or not, it was something that was uh, really critical to me as a young person to see my dad uh, taking his. Uh, conviction to the level where it cost him something, right? So uh, I think that that was part of my growing up is seeing seeing him involved in that. And of course, some of those issues, we look back now, we think, oh, civil rights, that, you know, has always been that way. But when I was a, a kid, uh, we saw um, some restaurants in Washington, D.C. that still would not serve black people. And my dad would take us in, we'd sit down for to eat. And if uh, if they wouldn't, dad would ask him, he'd bring the water and take our order, about to take our order, dad would say, do you serve Negroes here? And uh, if they said no, or if they hesitated, we would get up and leave and go to a different restaurant. So that was kind of, uh, and I was just a kid then. We Sometimes we got a little bit of hung, hungry waiting to find the right restaurant, but uh, it was important to make that uh, statement. Now, you could have given back in numerous different avenues, whether through uh, human rights, whether it be through uh, church, whether it be through nonprofit, but you chose the political route. You are the leader of the Christian Heritage Party. So what about politics made, what was the service to politics and getting involved in politics in your background, uh, sort of what brought politics to your forefront, I should say? Well, I think that we we saw some of the decisions being made in Ottawa, and I'm going to go back as far as the 70s, uh, 70s and 80s, uh, decisions that we were unhappy uh, with. And uh, we went to meetings. Uh, I think Joe Clark was our MP when we lived in Alberta uh, <laughs> and had had been uh, the Prime Minister of Canada at one time. And, and I was a young Christian then. And just becoming aware of the issues around pro-life, around abortion, some of those uh, issues that are still issues today. And I think uh, I asked him a question in in the in that you know uh, basically a debate setting, uh, you know, a public forum for candidates. It was all new to me then, as far as actually being involved being involved in politics. But I, I, I made a statement to him and I sort of wanted a response. And that was when we began uh, focusing our votes. We, we decided we would only vote for a candidate who would uh, commit to protecting innocent human life. And I guess after a while you say, well, 
I don't find any candidate that's doing what I want them to do. And uh, the political uh, aspect of it, there were Christian Heritage Party founders uh, down in Surrey, BC. There was a group that got together and uh, they had worked within the, the, the uh, federal parties, liberals and conservatives for some years in order to get pro-lifers elected. And then sometimes they found when those people got elected <laughs> that they didn't always do what they said they were going to do. They didn't stand by what they said were their convictions. So that's how the Christian Heritage Party started. And, and we joined shortly after that. So, so you we, were- we, basically we wanted to, if, if nobody else is going to do it, we'll do it. I, I didn't necessarily say I was going to be the best candidate or the best uh, person out there, but uh, if nobody else is standing for the issues, I will. So let's talk about the Christian Heritage Party because you are the leader of it. You became the leader in 2014, for those who uh, aren't aware. But in 2014, you became the uh, permanent leader after a few months of an interim leader. Um, what is it about the Christian Heritage Party that you think uh, you you want people to know? Because there might be a misconception that you are a one-issue party, like you said, pro-life. But I, I think over the last few months, I've been watching your social media feeds. You aren't. You do talk about other issues besides pro-life issues. So what would you want Canadians to know uh, that might not be well known because that's what this show is all about is trying to give a platform to parties who might not get the mainstream media attention that they technically deserve because every party has the right to have media attention. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Chris. And I, I wish everybody saw it that way. Uh, you know, cause we're going into an election there's right now there's 22 federal parties. We're not the smallest of the smallest. We're, I think, about seventh uh, uh, in terms of size, voters, and so on. But, uh, you know, we believe every party deserves to be heard. People start a party because they have convictions, whether it's animal rights or whatever. Uh, there are people that, that that is the most important thing for them, and they deserve to be heard. You know, if if they're, uh, what they have to say resonates with voters, fine. And if not... Uh, that's fine as well. But but during a campaign, as you know, the big parties that already have a lot of money, already have a lot of members, already have members uh, seated in uh, parliament, uh, they get most the the lion's share of media attention. And so the smaller parties, whatever the value of their uh, platforms, they don't even get a chance to speak to the voters. They don't get the credibility that comes with being on CBC at uh, the six o'clock news or whatever. By the way, we do have this is an older copy of our policy book, but we do have policies on pretty well every aspect of, uh, you know, federal Canadian policy. Um, but the on the pro-life issue, it is significant. People say we're a one issue party. That's not true. Um, but we say abortion is a one party issue that uh, we are the only ones uh, willing to talk about it on the campaign trail. And there are uh, there are good members of parliament, uh, people who would agree with us on a lot of these issues. They're they're you know maybe in a conservative party or in people's party, uh, but their their party has no official policy. And I sort of say if you're not willing to talk about it uh, when you're seeking to get elected, once you get in there, you're not going to have much of a mandate to uh, to enact legislation. And that has been the case with the conservative party. We also, of course, uh, as people may surmise, uh, because we're based on Christian values, biblical values, we are concerned about gender, uh, the, the gender confusion being thrust upon our nation through, uh, through the public school system and through the media and so on. And um, we're not afraid to speak about that. We, we believe 
God, you know, did create male and female, and uh, that that is the design that works best. Children do best in a in a family where there is a father and a mother. Um, you know, that's the statistical <laughs> truth. Uh, you know, there are other uh, types of families, and I'm I'm not criticizing them. Not uh, you know, uh, I, I hope each individual uh, has the best success in life as possible. But, uh, you know, statistically, the, the married two-parent family is, is the one in which children do the best. We also uh, support the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which uh, we didn't write, but the, one of the uh, authors of that uh, document is uh, still living and speaking today. That is... Um, uh, the Honorable Brian Beckford, former yep. prem, Premier of Newfoundland. And you may have had him on your show. I don't know, uh, Chris. but I would love to have he, him on the show if he wants to come on the show. <laughs> he, he probably would be willing to do that. And he's come out um, in, you know, swing, come out swinging to defend the uh, Charter Rights and Freedoms, especially the freedoms part. And uh, he can uh, do an excellent job and does do an excellent job of of saying why the recent uh, events in Ottawa were a violation of uh, that charter, violation of individual human rights. Uh, we also, I mean, I'm gonna say one of our main things, so we support the supremacy of God and the rule of law, which is written into our constitution. That's not something we invented. That is something that even former prime minister, uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau uh, put his signature to. Whereas Canada is founded on principles that recognize the supremacy of God, and the rule of law. So our whole Charter of Rights and Freedoms is based on that concept. And I don't know if there's any other party uh, than ours that endorses that, uh, you know, uh, in a strong way. We also, I would say, managing of our finances is uh, an area that um, we certainly have strong uh, policies about. Uh, we may not be the only ones concerned about the overspending of the federal government uh, at this time. Um, and, you know, this going into a hole, stealing from our children, really robbing our children of their inheritance because we are spending money that they will have to pay back uh, at some point, or they're going to pay it maybe as we are in inflation because the currency being devalued and interest rates going up, uh, that's going to hit them as well. So, so we're concerned that governments uh, and often political parties use taxpayers' money to buy their votes. And so uh, we we think government should operate under mandatory balanced budgets. So they should not spend in a given year any more than they take in and uh, begin paying off this horrendous national debt that is uh, costing us uh, millions and millions of dollars. I think last year or the year before, I think it was about uh, Seventy million dollars a day we were paying in interest, um, and that's bound to go up as the uh, debt goes up and as interest rates go up. Now, there's a lot to unpack on what you just said, so I want to I want I want to start with the first uh, last thing you said and work your way backwards. Uh, let's okay. start with inflation because that is a big thing that's on a lot of people's minds right now. I, I know my myself for instance, I went to the grocery store just this weekend, and uh, the cost of Good. Uh, the grocery basket was not the same as what it was a year or two years ago. Um, while we are coming out of a pandemic, whether you agree that we are out of it already or not out of it already, that's to be debated on by anyone else. But right now, let's talk about 
we're coming out of the end of the pandemic and we are seeing that the last two years where the government was trying to keep people afloat and try to basically help people throughout the, uh, the downturn and people restrictions and lockdowns, what would you have done differently? What would you have done differently to make sure people were able to keep afloat because people were losing their jobs, jobs were being cut and the government had to step in and say, okay, we need to give you some some financial stability here so that way you don't lose your house you don't lose your car your mortgage what would you have done differently during this time to ensure that the inflation rate did stay low but also keep people afloat as well well i think uh, you know first of all when the uh when covid you know hit us hard uh, or when we you know, became collectively aware of of COVID, let's say March 2020. I think all of us, you know, or let's say none of us knew really what was going to happen there. And so uh, immediate knee-jerk reactions from the government uh, are somewhat understandable for the flatten the curve for two weeks, et cetera, et cetera. Um, looking back in retrospect, and it and we, we don't look back from now, we, we could have looked back a couple of months after that and seen that, uh, you know, COVID was not what the models predicted. The, uh, the emergency rooms largely were not overwhelmed, at least not because of COVID. Some were overwhelmed before COVID ever appeared on the scene because of inadequate uh, infrastructure. Um, but the the problems have been exacerbated by government policies. Not uh, not they haven't learned from what what took place. And I mean, I have a lot, if we want to go on to COVID, I have a lot of thoughts about that. I don't know if we want to spend too much time on that. Um, we will, if you, if that's, if you want to talk about COVID, let's talk about COVID, Rod, because that is a, a lot of people are, uh, while there's a lot of uh, division right now of where our focus is, whether it be Ukraine and Russia, whether it be COVID-19, yeah. we can talk about that later, but let's talk about COVID because I know that you have being very prominent on social media, calling for the end of the mandates, end of the restrictions from Justin Trudeau, Premier Horgan, Premier Kenny, Premier Mo. Uh, it seems like a lot of the premiers are doing that. What is your position on moving forward into a COVID-less world that we currently are seeing? Sure. Well, first of all, when it became apparent very early into the uh pandemic let's let's give them two weeks of uh, grace that they shut everything down for two weeks okay we were all willing to make sacrifices but as things began to surface we found that it was elderly people who were being most impacted most likely to be hospitalized or to die of covid uh, in fact in the first year in british columbia not one person not one uh, under the age of 30 died of covid and so um, but the move towards shutting things down. So, so if once we realize that we should have been focusing as, as the uh, Barrington declaration says, we should have been focusing on protecting the elderly and letting uh, all the younger age and working age people and, and school age people should have been able to go about their business. It has been proven now. Uh, not everyone will agree with me, obviously, but it's it's obvious that the masks do not work. In fact, uh, one doctor explained it that you know a uh, the COVID germ or the you know the the virus particle 
that we're worried about escaping through the mask uh, is much smaller than the mask itself, the, than the mesh of the mask. Um, it's a thousandth of the size of a human hair. So if you have your mask on and you can slide a human hair in between your mask and your face, uh, COVID can go in or out if it's an airborne uh, thing. Uh, but the, the really, I would say, the most uh, um, damning piece of information for all the public health officers, for the prime minister and the premiers across this country who have moved lockstep uh, with uh, the narrative from Anthony Fauci, the most damning piece of information is that they have not responded to alternate treatments. And I'm going to say ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, monoclonal antibodies, that great uh, physicians and researchers like Dr. Peter McCullough, uh, Dr. Malone, who was one of the ones that helped in, invent mRNA technology, uh, Dr. Paul Alexander, who was on the White House uh, team uh, early in the game to try to beat, <clears throat> beat uh, COVID in the States. Uh, they're saying that there are other alternatives. That, and uh, who, Pierre Corey, Dr. Pierre Corey, uh, began talking very early, speaking to the Senate in the U.S. about uh, ivermectin. He says people do not have to die. All that being said, so when these, uh, Dr. Hoff in British Columbia down in Lytton, he began seeing damage in his patients. He had about 70% of his 1,500 or so patients were First Nations, and he began seeing uh, damage from the vaccines. This is you know later on after the vaccines became available, but uh, there is so much out there about these things, and the fact that is being censored, this good information is being censored. And the uh, like Dr. Hoff, when he began seeing the damage, he went to Bonnie Henry, our provincial health officer, and said, I wanna to talk to you about this, no response. Uh, recently, when the truckers were in Ottawa, I mean, not everyone agrees with the tactic, um, but they went there to make a, to give a message. They offered to have uh, the prime minister's health officers and, and researchers sit down with uh, our uh, people from our side of the aisle, uh, uh, to doctors like Alexander, uh, Byron Bridal, and, you know, um, Roger Hodkinson, uh, to discuss these issues, and they refused. They didn't even, they don't want the information. And I've found the same with my own MP, my own MLA. You send them information, and they're not interested. And uh, so, you know, we believe, in fact, Dr. McCullough says about 85% of the people who have died of COVID did not have to die if they would have gotten early treatment uh, instead of being sent home. Uh, so, you know, people will dispute that, but but uh, I think these health officers owe it to themselves and to the public uh, and to their, into their office to at least look at the information, which they have not done. We pride ourselves on going beyond that 15-second soundbite by becoming a backer of the show. With a quick visit to patreon.com and searching cross-border interviews, you can help continue this show. For as little as $3 a month, your support can ensure we grow and bring new and exciting things to our growing listenership. Click the link in the show notes and back the show today. Which, okay, so I, I'm going to play a little bit of a devil's advocate here because that's what that's what I like to do. And I just want to get sure. your opinion on this because you, you, you talked about, you mentioned earlier on in the, so far in the interview that 
people got things wrong that early on, right? People didn't know what this vax, this this uh, disease was, this <laughs> this virus was, what COVID nineteen was. We we still technically don't have a full on cure for it, and there are a lot of people who are saying that what happened was the best solution that we potentially had going forward. Now, you, 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 you yourself are saying that there are certain remedies that we could have taken that we that health science officers have put forward that could have helped. Other people have said other issues could have helped as well. So there's no perfect answer in this this uh, this uh, COVID-19 world that we live in. So how do we come together and unify the country to get out of this? Because while one side is saying one thing, the other side is saying the other thing, we have 12 other sides saying something completely different. So how do we get a cohesive message together and say, okay, guys, we can't just be doing it for this side or that side. We have to do it for Canada as a whole. Well, that's right. I mean, the uh, when people say follow the science, uh, science is a fluid, uh, you know, discipline and new information comes available and people, scientists, true scientists are responsible to look at the facts and adjust their uh, theories accordingly. Um, you know, uh, I don't know, just uh, Abraham Lincoln said during the Civil War, essentially, uh, we can both be wrong, but we can't both be right. Uh, so, you know, there we may not have hit on all the perfect solutions, but the fact, you know, if if the point of view I'm representing, if that is accurate, then people are dying needlessly. People have been locked out of their jobs, lost their jobs, lost their businesses needlessly because the government basically shut everybody down. There is no reason what's whatsoever for children to be wearing masks. There's no reason whatsoever for children to be getting vaccinated. Uh, there are, I mean, the Open VAERS report, if you go to Open VAERS in the United States, uh, VAERS vaccine adverse events reporting system uh, shows about over, over 20,000 uh, people who have died from the vaccine. Um, you know, again, not everyone wants that information, but those are, that's data from the CDC. Uh, that's not something cooked up by, uh, you know, somebody late at night, uh, just making up numbers. Uh, it is, uh, made available to the public through open VAERS. So like the original data is a little bit more difficult to, uh, you know, for average person like me to, to track down, but open VAERS puts it in very simple terms, you know, almost 2 million people that have been injured by the vaccines. And uh, the people should be taking that into account. In previous, let's say there's more uh, people have died since taking this vaccine than in the last 30 years from all other vaccines combined. This information, the government should be making available to the people and then giving them a choice, free informed consent. So people, and that's where the, the truckers convoy and I uh, get on the side of uh, you know, these mandates like right now, I can't get on a plane. I can't fly to uh, Ottawa or Calgary right now because I don't have a vaccine passport. But I had COVID last fall. I had it for two days. I took ivermectin and I have natural immunity for life as far as, as I'm concerned. And, uh, and yet I'm being discriminated against. Canadians are being denied their rights and discriminated against based on their personal medical choices. 
And when um, doctors or anyone else uh, tells people that these vaccines are safe and effective, uh, we know personally people who have died after taking the vaccine. Uh, we know people who have been damaged after taking the vaccine. Uh, so these statements are simply uh, what the doctor should be doing is giving the information. We think that it will help, for instance, but there are some risks. Uh, if you would like to, you know, if you're willing to take the risk here, you know, we're going to give you the vaccine. But to force people against their will, I don't know how many doctors, policemen, uh, nurses, uh, airline pilots, you know, that have lost their jobs. And that's, and of course, everyone else in between, uh, people who do other jobs that are just as important. I'm picking out some of the highly skilled jobs that take years of training uh, and they're being denied, uh, you know, they're being uh, kicked off their job, no more paycheck, to, no way to feed their family, uh, and for no reason whatsoever. The vaccinated are getting uh, infected and transmitting the disease um, in some some places, they say more than the unvaccinated, but let's say it's a, it's a simple fact that the vaccinated can still catch COVID and can still transmit it. Once you know that, why mandate vaccination? Says it's not stopping COVID. In fact, up here in Northern BC, and I think it's the same in many places, we had hardly any incidences of actual COVID until the vaccination program came in place. That's when we started getting a wave of it. So um, a lot of people look at that and say, this is crazy. Um, now, I, I was one of the unlucky few that uh, got it early on, COVID-19. I have got my vaccinations. I did get them after doctors told me I should. Um, I also had the unfortunate experience of receiving a cancer treatment uh, in 2020. I was diagnosed with a tumor on my occipital lobe and my temporal lobe. And I had my surgery canceled because the healthcare system was over at a capacity which it could not have someone like myself go in and potentially become worse or stay there overnight how would you have dealt with that because a lot of people say that healthcare is a provincial issue but healthcare funding comes from the federal government should the federal government have stepped up and potentially opened up more beds started building new hospitals with the provincial governments because we saw a and you mentioned it earlier on in the interview as well that the healthcare capacity was overwhelmed before the pandemic started. It got swamped during the pandemic. So how would you have helped with the healthcare system? Because while we might disagree with the treatments, we can all agree that COVID-19 did hospitalize a lot of people, whether it be with uh, preconditions, uh, other conditions as well, but COVID-19 did see an increase in our hospitalizations. So how would you have helped the hospitals deal with the over amount, the, the, the abundance of people going into the hospital? Well, of course, there are uh, different stories about how overwhelmed they were from COVID, right? <clears throat> there are people who went in with cameras into uh, ICU units that were supposed to be overwhelmed and saw hardly anyone there. There are you know testimonies from some nurses. I'm sure it varies from place to place. So if any of our listeners are uh, working in a hospital where they were overwhelmed. Uh, I'm not saying that it, there weren't places like that, but what we've done in the last few months in British Columbia and many places across the country, we've taken, uh, you know, qualified doctors and nurses and kicked them out of the system. Uh, you know, we have a local doctor here in uh, in Smithers is going through 
the challenges. Uh, you know, and he's got, you know, I think, 1,500 or 2,000 patients. And, you know, will he be able to continue to practice medicine? Uh, his patients rely on him. There's a shortage of doctors. So some of the overwhelmedness of, uh, you know, in recent months ha has to do with the firing termination of good doctors and nurses who refuse to take an experimental medication. Now, I, I know that ICUs uh, or hospitals could be overwhelmed before COVID because I had the experience when I was having surgery in uh, terrorists near here. Uh, this was long before COVID, and uh, we were crammed in then, and I came out of the hospital with a bad infection, a, a pneumonia infection, and I wasn't in there for a uh, th that kind of a, I was in there for a gallbladder surgery, but I came out of there because I was stuck in a room with someone else who was hacking their lungs out, and pretty soon I was doing the same thing. So, uh, and I'm not against, um, you know, proper management of, of infections, but uh, yes, and to answer your question, you know, more basically is uh, the government should be improving its capacity. Uh, federal government and provincial governments need to work together to improve capacity where uh, where it's possible. And we have been in favor for a long time of uh, having more individual hospital rooms and fewer multi-patient uh, war, you know, wards because for the simple fact, people do have uh, infections when they're in the hospital and the less exposure to each other, the better that would be. Um, I think I, I skipped over a question you had a while ago, and not, uh, you can go back to this if you like, um, but you asked what we would have done differently in terms of instead of firing so many people, closing down you know, restaurants where uh, we've heard so many testimonies of restaurant owners uh, who you know, are losing their businesses, they can't survive on 50% capacity or on just drive-through, uh, you know, uh, process. They, they need people to come in and sit down, and that's how their business functions. Um, the damage that's been done to our economy through that uh, when it was uh, totally unnecessary. But I believe where the government did shut people down, if the government was directly responsible for shutting you down, then they have a responsibility as, as you know, the CERB payments and so on. I think there was an appropriate level of that. I just think we far, far exceeded that where we had healthy people uh, sitting at home on their couch uh, when, you know, it wasn't saving anybody's life. It wasn't preventing any disease, but it was creating uh, a strain on the national budget. So, so I think the government does have a response where it's, where it's responsible. And that's why if they are going to fire a doctor or a policeman for refusing the vaccine, it's the government that should be paying the price, not not the employee who's been terminated for what I call no reason. So on the flip side of that, because you've mentioned the trucker convoy, the freedom convoy that left B.C. and headed to Ottawa, um, we saw uh, for almost two, three weeks, the uh, trucker convoy on Wellington Street outside of Parliament Hill. We have heard business reports and businesses talk to media, whether it be CBC, CTV, Rebel News, whatever news you want to say that the trucker convoy caused a downturn in their business because people weren't willing to come downtown. Ottawa. So do you think while the government had a role to play in saving the uh, businesses who had to shut down because of COVID-19 restrictions, the truckers have to sort of pay the businesses in some sense to sort of not playing well, tit for tat here. I'm just yeah. because they're yeah. similar because they did shut down some businesses in downtown Ottawa. Yeah. 
But I think the the narrative that I've heard and knowing people on the ground, I know truckers uh, had trucks there. I know people that drove from here in a car and, and spent uh, almost three weeks, you know, in that setting. Um, a lot of the businesses that were actually shut down were shut down by the government, possibly by the mayor of Ottawa. Um, I, I heard that the Shaw Center, I don't know how long they were shut down, but you know, they were upset because people coming in without masks. I don't know to what extent that was the case, but I think uh, far fewer of the businesses were actually shut down by the truckers being there than were shut down by government action of one sort or another. Obviously, you know, on the day when uh, uh, police moved in, uh, you know, even parliament was shut down. That was a decision of, of the government, not a decision of the truckers, right? And it was in my view, totally unnecessary. Um, and it's, you know, obviously in any kind of a conflict, whether it's a war in Ukraine or whether it is a, a cultural uh, conflict within a country, there are uh, casualties. There are, um, you know, things that happen that you don't want to have happen. But I think what the government, you know, when I look back, the original violation was our prime minister and the premier's violating the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and especially with the mandates. If it hadn't been for the mandates, I don't think that the truckers' convoy would have ever taken place. But but you have, um, I think it's about 20% of the truckers that are not vaccinated and cannot cross the U.S. border. That has a direct impact on their lives. Uh, the, you know, all these people, like, I'd like to compare numbers. I don't have the numbers, but there have been thousands and thousands of people who have been put out of their jobs and uh, can no longer, you know, they don't have a paycheck to feed their family or pay their mortgage. And I think compared to a few weeks uh, of uh, disruption in Ottawa, I, I think it's, you know, just, and, and, I, and I lay the blame at the prime minister's feet for, for uh, creating a, a situation that ordinary letters to, letters to the premier, premier uh, and prime minister weren't going to solve the problem. Now, we, we could talk about COVID for the next few hours if we had to, yeah. but there's a lot of other issues that are happening, not only here in Canada, but across the world as well. I want to get your take on what's been tra what's been transpiring over the last week, um, and that's in Ukraine. Uh, we have seen Russia under Vladimir Putin uh, go in saying that they are trying to save the people of the Donbass area. Uh, what is the position from the Christian Heritage Party and yourself on the transgressions that are going on in Ukraine? Ukraine today and as we speak and then record this interview. Well, and I know there are people with a uh, contrary view and, and I sympathize. I, I don't think that um, the Ukraine is the uh, epitome of a democratic uh, country. I mean, there, although I begin to wonder whether Canada is uh, now either, but, but uh, there are no doubt problems in Ukraine before Russia came in. And, and I, I, uh, don't hesitate to say that there probably are people who have suffered, Russian people in Ukraine, who have, uh, you know, paid the price for uh, minorities in any country that that face persecution or, you know, uh, ill treatment. However, for Putin to uh, launch an all-scale attack across uh, Ukraine, the damage that's been done, the, the people that have been killed and injured, uh, and just the violation of the, the space of, of a sovereign nation is very alarming. I mean, even his threats now to 
put his uh, nuclear team on alert. I mean, uh, we hope that won't come to that, but it, he has the, the tools and, and a, a dictator like that. We, we think that in our country, we, we have the levers of power as, a, as the electorate. You know, if we don't like the actions of our leader, we can vote the person out. Um, but in uh, communist Russia, um, it isn't that way. Uh, I mean, they have so-called elections, but uh, I'm just rereading now. I read it 40 years ago. Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's uh, book, The Gulag Archipelago, uh, about the arrest, intimidation, and so on. And and in some ways, um, Russia still has the same behind the scenes. They they still operate in a very brutal manner. I saw the way their police were arresting their protesters over there. I think the, I heard last night there were 6,000 in jail. But uh, they were using, you know, what we would really call brutal tactics. We saw a few examples here in Ottawa, but uh, nothing like what's going on in Russia. Uh, so my heart goes to the people of Ukraine. I think uh, Putin had no uh, excuse, no justifiable reason for uh, initiating this attack as he has. And it looks like he's uh, running into a lot more opposition than he thought he would. I don't know where this is going to end, but I think uh, he should withdraw his troops. And uh, you can't bring back lives that are lost. And that's the sad part of any any conflict like this. I, I agree wholeheartedly. Conflicts always have loss of life, and sometimes they are uh, not they there shouldn't ever be a loss of life. And this 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 just this is just one moment in time when I'm looking at it and going, okay. There was a reason there's there's a possibility of not having this many people die because of a conflict. So I, I, I do lay the blame here on Putin as much as some people may not want to. We pride ourselves on going beyond that 15-second soundbite by becoming a backer of the show. With a quick visit to Patreon.com and searching cross-border interviews, you can help continue this show. For as little as $3 a month, your support can ensure we grow and bring new and exciting things to our growing listenership. Click the link in the show notes and back the show today. I will. Um... I want I want to talk about Canada as a whole now because we talked about the two biggest issues. Now let's talk about the Christian Heritage Parties and you as a, as a whole. What do, what does the Christian Heritage Party believe is the biggest issue facing Canadians today? Well, I think it has become freedom, uh, freedom of speech, and freedom of uh, uh, freedom of of a people to. I mean, you know, if you can't move, if you can't speak. If if your views are being censored, as many are, through both uh, government action, through the media, and through social media, uh, then it then it becomes uh, very difficult to contend on any other issue. I mean, we say you know, life, family, and freedom. Uh, so the protection of innocent human life. I mean, if you lose the ability to uh, publish on that on that issue, if you if uh, Facebook and uh, YouTube are going to kick you off for talking about that or gender issues, that's that's probably one that is more subject to, uh, to um, government intervention um, directly now. And the passage of C4, uh, which is going to make it difficult 
for pastors and for parents to speak with, uh, in the case of pastors, their parishioners, or with parents, their children, about issues around gender, uh, to speak honestly, to express their opinions. Uh, they could be facing, you know, jail time for expressing a biblical point of view. So uh, if you lose your freedom of speech, uh, then you don't have a democracy left. So freedom has become, the, to me, almost the top issue right now. How do we fix it? That's the, the age old question, because we can we can rage about what the issues are. But unless a politician comes to me and says, here's how we can fix it, then I, I, I hardly believe that they have a chance. So uh, you say freedom is the biggest issue. How do we fix that? How do we fix the fact that people, are, in your words, can't say what they want to say, can't post what they want to post, can't talk about things or talk about things with their children or with their priests? How do we fix that? Well, uh, obviously, we have to vote for Christian heritage party candidates. <laughs> well, uh, I mean that we, if presuming that that the House of Commons is still what we think it is, that we elect representatives there from 338 districts across the country, who go there to uh, represent the values, their own values, their conscience, the values of their party, and the values of their constituents. Um, if that were still happening as it ought to be happening, um, then uh, I think we, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in today. Party uh, discipline, party, party politics, internal party politics <laughs> has driven a lot of this. And you go back to, uh, you know, even 2005 when uh, same-sex marriage was passed. Uh, in, in 1999, uh, that same issue was approached and Parliament overwhelmingly rejected it. But in a few short years, uh, you know, a little bit more indoctrination, a little bit more CBC being paid. That's one way to do it, uh, privatize CBC or, or uh, you know, get rid of CBC because my tax dollars, much as I hate to, to know this, my tax dollars are putting out a message on public broadcasting that is uh, both uh, biased and untrue in many cases. So that's that's one thing. Our, our public school system, I'm ranging a little bit here, but public school system is promoting uh, uh, policies, philosophies that uh, I think are damaging to the country. Of course, children graduating from those schools are then voting for the politicians who represent the views they've been indoctrinated with in the schools. <laughs> Um, so there's there's many uh, aspects of this, <clears throat> but um, Canadians need to demand um, free speech, access to media channels. And I don't know how we overcome, you know, YouTube and Facebook, who are, you know, like they're not largely the Canadian owned business. <clears throat> but in in Canada, uh, like our prime minister is buying uh, the support of various news channels. I mean, first of all, CBC, 1.5 billion a year. And then there's 595 million that went to a variety of other, what he called trusted news sources. They're, he trusts them, I don't. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> so um, it's wrong to take my tax dollars and use them against me in media. Um, but I don't know how you get around that other than voting out the government that's in and uh, making sure that the ones you vote in uh, share your views. So 
my, my first introduction to the Christian Heritage Party came in 2012. Uh, 2012, there was a by-election in Durham, Ontario. Aaron O'Toole was the winner of that. And I sat down with the gentleman, Andrew, I forget his last name, the names, I know Andrew's first name, but I, I don't, I forget his last name. He was the Christian Heritage Party, and that was my first introduction to them, uh, to, to your party. So, since then, I followed the progress of where the party's gone and how the party potentially is growing. And the one thing I want to say is, while you talk about these issues, it doesn't seem like Canadians are coming to you, though. And I want to know from you, how do you get your message out when you have so many sort of restrictions upon yourself? But how do you get your message out when you potentially don't have the 338 candidates across the country that are running? Because if I'm not mistaken, the last election, you had 25, the previous election, you had a little bit more. So what, how can you start getting your message out and how can you start building a coalition to potentially be a viable uh, option for the Canadian people when you don't have the 338 candidates running? Well, that's an excellent question. So uh, uh, we are, of course, looking for candidates now. Um, we operate uh, because we have never uh, achieved 10% of the national vote. We don't get any money back after the election, whereas the uh, conservatives and the liberals each got about $20 uh, million back from taxpayers of money they spent in the last election. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, that's a challenge because... Advertising costs money. <clears throat> we have our website, uh, chp.ca, and if people go there, we have a lot of information there. <clears throat> uh, we have uh, some social media channels that we're using, but it is, uh, I mean, you're right. It's very difficult. If the national media, CBC, for instance, doesn't cover us, if they don't see the leader of the Christian Heritage Party on the news uh, at night, and they don't, um, <clears throat> then... Uh, it's hard to get the credibility uh, in our in the most recent election. And I think this is uh, an ongoing situation in the People's Party of Canada, uh, Maxime Bernier. Um, a lot of the people that might otherwise support us have gone with the People's Party. And that's um, a challenge for us. Now, <clears throat> we can say, excuse me, <clears throat> we can say that um, the People's Party has never had a policy convention. Yet, uh, I don't even think they've had a leadership convention, but Maxime is there, uh, you know, obviously their leader. And he's a, I like Max, I've sat with him, I've talked with him. Um, they do not have a policy uh, on their books at any level, protecting protection of innocent human life at all stages. Uh, they do not have a policy endorsing traditional marriage between one man and one woman, <clears throat> and against the imposition of LGBT uh, ideology on school children, and they don't have a policy uh, supporting the supremacy of God and the rule of law. So those are sort of three distinctions between us and uh, People's Party. Uh, people who care about those issues, I think, belong in our party. If they uh, don't care about those issues, the People's Party is also speaking up for freedom. And I want to give them, you know, acknowledge that we stand with them in terms of uh, freedom and in terms of no carbon tax, in terms of, you know, a balanced budget. So, you know, we have much in common, but uh, there are those issues that separate us out. And that's why, why we still are, uh, you know, uh, hewing away at our corner of the, of the task here, because um, if we, if we're not there, nobody will be representing those issues. 
I want to I want to end on one question that's been sort of it came up early on, but I, I didn't ask it, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I, it's not a gotcha question. It's not anything like that. It's just a question that's been on the back of my head since the interview started. And we live in a society where we we we, we want to believe that there is a separation of church and state. Uh, that is a word that I've heard a lot in the last probably 10, 15 years. The Christian Heritage Party, and you you mentioned it a few times, is is founded on Christian beliefs and the word of the Bible and the word of God and uh, God's supremacy. How do you justify that? Because we, we try to make it that our government is a government for all people and not just a select group of people. But when you have a party like yourself, who is the Christian Heritage Party, who believes that the Christian word is the word of the land, how do you separate those two? Because you have to be the party of all people and not just a few select. Sure. Well, you know, of course, we uh, we wouldn't want to see any restriction. We believe in freedom of religion. We wouldn't want to see restrictions on anyone else. We think there's room in the House of Commons for people of all different uh, faith backgrounds or, you know, people who say they are not of a faith background, that they're not religious at all. I think they're mistaken. You know, I think we currently do not have a separation of uh, church and state. It's not the Christian church, but but the secular views on whether it's abortion, uh, uh, gender issues, you know, other other things. We have uh, people that are promoting and and imposing, in many cases, their views on the rest of society. And they hold those views as strongly as we hold ours. Uh, I would call them religious views, whether it's having to do with uh, climate change. There are people that are you know, convinced and, and committed to the concept that uh, climate change is is something that we need to, you know, our whole policies need to be directed at. Um, but also, I have been asked the question before in in a you know local debate here. You're a Christian. How are you going to represent non-Christians? Well, you know, really, the things we stand for: uh, don't lie, don't steal, don't kill, don't commit adultery. You know, uh, pay your pay your bills. Uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself. These are our policies and a way of living that uh, are good for everybody. Uh, we don't think that the government should be used as a, uh, an evangelistic tool, but the government is there to uh, look after the health and safety of individuals. And so where we see those that health and safety and freedom of individuals being violated, then you know Christian principles uh, are that I mean basically are reflected in the charter to a large extent and in Magna Carta 1215 uh, that uh, every Canadian needs to live under the rule of law. That's the other part of that uh, statement, and that you know the prime minister, the king, whoever uh, needs to uh, needs to obey the same rules as everybody else. And I th I think you know if we can uh, move away from the religious side of things. Um, we believe that those principles are well reflected in the Bible and and that the principles that come out of the Bible are are good for everybody. Um, you know, so that, that's sort of my my take on that. Now, uh, you took a shot at Maxime Bernier for not having a leadership uh, election. Uh, I got to ask the follow up question because I just wrote it down as well when you're talking. Um, you have been the party leader since 2014. Have you had a leadership review of your leadership? And if so, if not, would you call for one to make sure that you do have, still have the support of the Christian Heritage Party? 
Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. Yeah, at every convention, uh, we have triennial conventions. And this this last fall, it was it took four years because of uh, COVID. We were not able to get together in the fall of uh, 2020. But at every uh, convention, there is a, review, a leadership review. There's a, a secret ballot vote uh, of convention attendees on the performance of the leader. Do, you know, and if if I were to uh, you know, fail, or if 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 the membership were to say uh, we don't want you anymore, uh, that would that would automatically uh, cause the next leadership convention to be, uh, or the next convention to be a leadership convention. It would it automatically would put us in mode towards a leadership convention. Well, I, I thank you for answering that question, honestly. Um, so with that, I, I do want to thank you for taking your time out of your busy day today. We're almost coming up on the hour mark here. And I, I do have one last question for you, and that is, how can people learn more? We have spent the last hour trying to get as much information out there as possible, but there's at least one person yelling at their screen saying, why didn't you ask this question? One person yelling at their car radio on whatever road they're listening to this on. So how can people reach out to you, learn, ask questions if they want to follow up on some things that we've talked about here today sure well uh, chp.ca www.chp.ca will take you to our website um, and there you can if you can get contact information uh, people can can contact me through the website but certainly we would you can get on our, our weekly communique uh, email list which you don't have to join to to get that but we are looking for people to join uh, we need members we need EDA growth, and we need candidates for whenever the next election is going to be called. We don't know when that is. And then I have a question for you, uh, if I could, right before we close. And that is, uh, have you, so you have not had your surgery yet that you were waiting for? I, I did have my surgery back in December, but uh, we we have a few things that we still have to deal with. So, um, yeah, I that. I, had part of my brain removed. So that's why I'm wearing glasses. So, okay. Well, uh, congratulations on, on going through that and getting your surgery. And we certainly wish you the best and, uh, going forward in that, that you get full, uh, recovery or full, you know, use of all, all your, uh, capacity there, your, uh, hopefully, hopefully people who have listened to this uh, know that uh, uh, this is how I conduct interviews and they're not going, why didn't you follow up on this? Because I, I don't want to. I This is my show and I get to do what I want to do. <laughs> but um, Rod, I want to thank you so much for doing this. This has been a pleasure to chat with you and learn more about your party, but also learn and just shine a light on some of the parties that are out there. Like you said, we do have a lot of political parties. We do not just have the top five that are in parliament. We have parties who represent people of this country across this nation. And not everyone votes conservative, liberal, NDP, green, block, and the People's Party of Canada. There are other people who vote other different ways. So we do have to take time out of our days to listen to people who don't vote for those top six parties. Well, we really appreciate that, Chris. Thank you for the opportunity to, to speak to you and to your listeners today. And, and uh, God bless you and your work going forward. 
Well, thank you. Um, so everyone here at the Crossword Interviews with Chris Brown, you know what I'm about to say next. For more information on the Christian Heritage Party, the links are in the show notes. So if you're listening to this, scroll back, hit the uh, website link. If you're listening to this or watching this on YouTube, scroll down. The links will be in the show notes to Twitter, uh, Facebook, and also the website for the Christian Heritage Party. So I highly recommend you check out those just to learn a little bit more about some different opinions. Uh, I will say this as well. Uh, have yourself an excellent rest of your day. Enjoy your day and get out from behind Twitter. Get out from behind social media and have a conversation with someone. You may not agree completely with everything, but if you have a conversation, our world will be a better place. And attacking people on social media is not the way that we do things in this country. So with everyone here at the Crossword Interview Podcast, well, Crossword Interviews with Chris Brown, have yourself an excellent rest of your day. Keep talking, guys. Cross-Border Interviews with Chris Brown was produced and edited by Miranda Brown Associates Incorporated. To learn more about us, visit crossborderinterviews.ca.